This is NBA Sound System Live, featured on NBA.com sites around the world and archived on the NBA Sound System podcast feed, where you get your podcasts by searching NBA Sound System. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, each with the handle at NBA Sound System, or visit us at NBASoundSystem.com for more. Now, NBA Sound System Live. It is indeed NBA Sound System Live, Carlin Gay alongside Scott Rafferty. Glad you're joining us wherever you are, however you're doing so. A reminder, if you haven't already, you can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, typing in the NBA Sound System, uh, the name, and uh, go ahead and subscribe, like us, leave a comment, give us a five-star like. We we haven't had one of those in a while, so why not do us a favor and uh, let us know that you're enjoying what you hear. Uh, Scott, how you doing, my man? Colin, I think last time we did this, I was saying uh, I was doing better than the Miami Heat, and I think it's only fitting that to say <laughs> that I'm I'm doing a bit better than the the Milwaukee Bucks right now. So yes, uh, yes, yeah, it, it hasn't been good in Milwaukee, but we'll maybe shed some op, you know, a, a guiding light for them, some a light of optimism for them uh, coming up in a little bit here. We are going to talk and get our your thoughts, Scott, on the. Uh, Monty versus Tibbs situation. Uh, Thibodeau coming away with coach of the year. Do you agree, disagree? We'll find out in a little bit. The Phoenix Suns, are they the best remaining team in the Western Conference? We'll discuss that. And how will the Philadelphia 76ers slow Trey Young down? Uh, All those questions will be answered over the next little bit here on NBA Sound System. But we have to start where the world is, uh, the basketball world, their attention is focused on Brooklyn and Milwaukee. The Milwaukee Bucks looked I mean, unbeatable, basically, uh, against the Miami Heat. Swept them right out of the playoffs. None of the games were competitive other than the first one. And now it's been the reverse of that. The first two games against the Brooklyn Nets have not been competitive. Uh, the Bucks look like they are outmatched, overpowered, everything in between. Um, what, what's your early thoughts on the Bucks Nets series so far? Um, it, my early thoughts are that it, it hasn't been great for the Bucks, and I feel like pretty much everything that could have gone wrong for them has gone wrong. Um, ga- I mean, game one was tough because it's you know game one's in Brooklyn. The Bucks had had a little bit of a break from their last series. Um, they also, if you remember correctly, they had a really rough offensive game against the Miami Heat in game one of that first round series. So. You know, that, that, that almost, and it was weird, like James Harden got injured within the first minute of the game. So, you know, you can kind of throw that game plan that they probably had going into that game one out of the window. There was a lot of things that, that were kind of weird about that game. But game two, I mean, the, the, the Nets came out almost like, you know, like sharks in the water. Um, and it's just, I, I wrote something after game one about how the, the Nets this season, even without James Harden, were basically scoring at the league's best rate when two of their other All-Stars were on the court. And you've seen it in these two games. Like, this this Bucks defense is, is, is fantastic. I mean, they, they had the best defensive rating in the league the last two seasons. They slipped to, I think it was like 8 or ninth. They were still top 10 this season. But, like, a lot of these schematic things that they changed this season, you know, bringing in a P.J. Tucker, switching more during the regular season, like, they took that hit defensively in the regular season, hoping it would pay off in the playoffs. I mean, and the Nets are just absolutely picking them apart so far. 
Um, I mean, th- there's, I'm sure we'll get into, there's some reasons to think that, you know, maybe the Bucks can pick it up in Milwaukee, but I mean, their backs there against the wall right now. They're in a mu- going into a must win game three in Milwaukee. Um, and it, I mean, the, the, the Nets just look like the superior team just all around. They really do. Um, I, I like you, uh, had, you know, a lot of optimism around this Bucks team this year. Um, a lot of the changes I think I, I was on board with. Um, in fact, I, I'll go ahead and say it. I picked this this Bucks team to beat the Nets in six games. I, I was I was convinced that what I saw in the Miami series would be able to carry over to this series with the Brooklyn Nets. And I know the defense is you know an issue, and, and especially when you give up 125 points in a game, everyone's going to look at the defense and say that you know that's. That's really where the Bucks need to focus on, and do they need to focus on defensively stuff defensively? Absolutely, I, I think that obviously they haven't you know played their best uh, defense so far in this series. But I'm really more concerned about the offensive end because they right now are averaging 97 points per 100 possessions in the first two games against the Brooklyn Nets, and I don't think I've seen the Nets do anything that we haven't seen other teams do before to the Milwaukee Bucks at this juncture in the series. You can say that they've missed shots. That's easy, I get that. But it's the type of shots that they're taking, the walk-up threes, um, and, and and by guys that you would think uh, who are in, you know, that have playoff, um, you know, composure. Drew Holiday specifically, he had a much better game two than he had game one. But then in that game one, when, when the dish was running away with the spoon a little bit, he was walking up and taking threes that, under normal circumstances, I, I I really have to scratch my eyes and say, is this Eric Bledsoe playing? I thought they traded him. <laughs> I thought they got rid of him. But he had the same sort of mistakes offensively that he had uh, that Eric Bledsoe would suffer with. And it, it's like almost like because they know that Brooklyn is going to score and because of how easy they're making it look offensively, the Bucks are getting away from they're, – they're trying to keep up and trying to – to get home runs rather than just hit singles and stay within striking distance. And we haven't seen the Nets go through any long scoring drought, even with Katie and Kyrie not on the floor. Like the bench is coming in and still scoring at a high clip. But I I, I am really concerned about the offense more so than the defense. It's funny. I was, uh, I was looking up some stats this morning because I was curious. And one that I think speaks to, to how this series has gone so far is that in the regular season, the Bucks averaged 255 passes per game. That was near the bottom of the league, but through two games of this series, they're averaging 208 passes. So they're averaging like 50 less passes so far in this series. What's interesting is that the Nets are the opposite. They averaged 277 passes per game in the regular season, and they're up to basically 300. And I think the funny thing is, like going into this series, you would have thought, okay, you have a Nets team that has three of the best isolation scores in the league, you would have probably thought the stats to be uh, like the Nets aren't moving the ball as much because they lean on that one-on-one play style and the Bucks would be the team that's moving the ball around. But that just hasn't been the case. Um, and again, like the Nets are just picking them apart. There was um, there was one play in game two, which jumped out to me as soon as it happened. And uh, Kevin Durant had Drew Holiday on him, took a couple dribbles, pulled up like he was going to rise up for a, for a jumper at the free throw line. And Giannis helped off of Kyrie one pass away to prevent him from getting an open shot. Kevin Durant kicked it to Kyrie Irving. It's Kyrie Irving, so Chris Middleton leaves the guy in the corner to rotate over to him. Kyrie moves the ball to the corner. 
the guy open is Joe Harris, who <laughs> who has led the the NBA in three point percentage twice in his career, um, and a, and a corner three is basically a layup for him. And it right. just speaks to like how difficult this team is to guard, even with just two of those guys, and they're moving the ball around. And I I, I do actually think the Nets do deserve a lot of credit for how they are playing defensively. Like this wasn't a great defensive team in the regular season, but I, I do think you know that they're playing Giannis pretty well. Like give Blake Griffin credit. Um, he's not the the biggest or longest um, defender, but like he's super strong, has a really low center of gravity. Um, he's using his physicality well to I think keep Giannis out of the paint, especially in that game too. And sure. and I think just kind of, kind of the rotations that they're making defensively, like that they're, they're forcing the Bucks to play the way that they want them to play. Um, and like you said, like it just feels like the Bucks haven't have no rhythm right now. Um, and almost have no identity. Like it, it feels like they're, they're really kind of grappling with that, which which really jumps out after that first round series against the Heat, where they just looked super confident on both ends of the court. Yeah, I yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right about that. But and I and I hope that I didn't come across not giving feeling like I don't want to give the Nets credit for what they're doing defensively to disrupt the Bucks because they're doing they're doing exactly what they should be doing and, and making life tough for the Milwaukee Bucks. My problem with this is that I'm looking at if I'm the Bucks, this is the third you know playoff uh, round in a row where you run into the same sort of defenses or similar defenses that you've seen that have defeated you before and it seems like they still can't figure it out. And Miami didn't do much to stop Milwaukee because they just didn't have the pieces to do it. And and the same thing with Orlando a year ago. Orlando tried it, but they just didn't have the pieces to do it. And I'm looking at the same blueprint that Toronto rolled out with small tweaks here or there and different personnel, and it's working. It's working once again. And you have you know Blake Griffin, who's not known for his defense, even in the prime of his career, wasn't known for his defense, has a blueprint and is following it to a T, and he knows he has a ton of help as well. So... It's on. It's on Bud. It's on the Bucks to really figure it out offensively. I think there's a couple of ways that they can do that. I, I really want to see Giannis in, in pick and roll situations as the roller. Not everyone goes crazy about what Giannis can do as a pick and roll ball handler and how he's added this new dimension to his game and, and everything else. And it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely great that he's able to do that. But I think when you run into quicksand and you run into you know this muddy area that they are on offensively where shots aren't falling there's no rhythm I think an easy way to get some rhythm is to allow Giannis to be a screen and roll guy and sometimes it's, it's he's just going to be a gravity roller you know it's not he's not gonna I don't think the Nets are you know going to sell out to try and stop him from rolling all the way to the basket because they, the Bucks have shooters but if they do that you, you have that option that you can kick out to now you know, gunners on the perimeter that can knock it down. And then on top of it, you have two really good ball handlers and decision makers in screen and roll scenarios in Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton that are super efficient in those, you know, situations that in in not so much Drew Holiday's situation, but definitely in Chris Middleton's situation, who's who's dying to find some rhythm. He just hasn't been able to find it at all. And this might be able to simplify the game for him. Either he has the ball in his hand or he's standing in the corner waiting for an open pass. You know, based off of Giannis' holiday screen and roll scenario. So, I really want to see Giannis used as a, uh, a ball screener and roller a lot more. 
Um, and, and, and I think it will allow him to get easier looks at the rim when, when things are slowing down. It will allow him to get into a rhythm, see the ball go through the hoop, and put him in this different scenario where maybe he makes uh, a play off of the secondary role. Maybe he maybe he, he's going to get fouled more, and that might be problematic, but at least you put him in a situation where he doesn't have to think as much and read as much defense or offensively uh, and, and maybe give the Nets a different look than they don't have right now. Yeah, you. Uh, th- another play that came to mind when you were speaking through that, like there was one possession in game two where Giannis was facing up Blake Griffin out of the post um, and Blake did his thing, kind of held his ground. But Bruce Brown made a really nice rotation off the, from, the, from the perimeter and basically pounced on Giannis as he was spinning. So he didn't know that help was coming. Um, until he was like halfway through his spin and he kicked it out. But I, but by that point, Bruce Brown could close out um, and, th- and they got a stop. So it's those situations that you're talking about. It's like when it's in isolation, everything slows down that they can kind of load up on him and game plan around him. Because um, like you, I mean, it, it does seem, I haven't looked at the numbers or anything, but it seems like when they're getting out in transition, when they're using Giannis as a screener, it feels like also... I. I, I don't really remember seeing them do the whole like park a guy in the dunker spot when Giannis has the ball, which is what they were doing all season long. Like it, that, I think that's what's really stood out to me in these first couple games. It's like right. the Bucks made all these things, tried all these different things in the regular season, and we just really haven't seen it through two games. Right. And now you're basically your backs against the wall in a must must win situation. And what do you do? Um, but yeah, getting the offense flowing, moving the ball more, using him as a roller, a cutter, uh, maybe playing smaller in times, but. I mean, the, the the problem with going small is that, <laughs> I mean, it, I, I looked at Kevin Durant's isolation numbers in the playoffs today, and they're absolutely outrageous. I mean, the guy is generating nearly half of his scoring either in isolation or the post, and he's basically doing it at the most efficient rate in the league. So if you go small, he can score against pretty much anyone one-on-one on this Bucks team. I mean, he, he's he's scoring at ease against P.J. Tucker. Um, right. He had a couple incredible plays against Giannis in Game 2, who's you know, def- reigning defensive player of the year, and they just, they play five out. So if you crash on him, he's kicking out to Blake Griffin, who was like a 40% catch and shoot, three-point shooter of the season. They're swinging the ball around to a Joe Harris, a Kyrie Irving. Like this team is just so good offensively that if they can muck things up just enough defensively, you basically have no chance. Well, I said it before, and I'll say it again. This series, to me, uh, the NBA champion comes out of it. I really do believe that. I think this is the uh, this is the finals, the pseudo the pseudo finals. And right now, it looks as though, um, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks are are are, are <laughs> losing their shot at at, uh, at winning the uh, NBA championship here in the second round, which is weird. Um, they the two things you, you said there, and we'll quickly touch on, and I'll move on. I don't want to see P.J. Tucker guard Kevin Durant anymore. I want to see Giannis guard Kevin Durant. And you know, according to the NBA matchup data, this is a top three in terms of the Bucks that have defended him. Um, P.J. Tucker's obviously spent the most time on him, almost 50 possessions, uh, partial possessions so far. And, and then we go down, and it's Chris Middleton, it's Drew Holiday, and Giannis is fourth on that list. After Giannis you know, really shut down Jimmy Butler, I thought he had turned the corner and figured out, you know what? Forget about playing the softball stuff. I'm, I'm going to try and guard the best you know, player on the other team, take that upon myself, and maybe not do it. He doesn't have to do it you know, every possession. But when the guy gets rolling, you know, it, it's time to switch on, and we just haven't seen enough of that. Um, granted, Kevin Durant's a different beast than Jimmy Butler, and he could, he could beat you in so many different ways. But I think Giannis has the length, the size. He could be physical with him, um, and I know you're obviously fearful of him getting in foul trouble, but mm-hmm. I, I do think that – 
you have to at least present Kevin Durant with a different body in front of him. It's not PJ Tucker. He's just not good enough anymore. You know, PJ Tucker two years ago when the uh, the, the Rockets were pushing the 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 Warriors in a, in a seventh game and, and almost finally went through. If it wasn't for you know twenty seven missed you know three pointers that we've heard about forever or twenty six whatever it was that number was. That's not the same PJ Tucker anymore. You know, that's it's almost three years ago now. You know, so it's it, he, he's not as fast and, and light in the feet anymore. And honestly, he's he's worried about uh, you know switching out shoes more than he is trying to stop Kevin Durant. Um, so that's the one thing. Uh, and and the, the second thing I think escaped my mind because I re, I'm reminded and got upset about the fact that PJ Tucker wore so many shoes <laughs> in a blowout loss. Uh, you PJ Tucker, you got to be kidding me. You had two. Did he finish with two points? Um, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I, I do remember him picking up two early fouls, um, and it, it wasn't one of PJ Tucker's best games. But he had three different pairs of shoes on. This is his stats from game two. Two points, three rebounds. He went one for two from the field, and it was a minus nine on the floor. And he only had the two fouls, Scott. So he picked up those two fouls early, and we barely saw him after that. I, I don't he know. Wore, that minus nine isn't that bad, actually. <laughs> in the, in the grand not, scheme of things, <laughs> but he was off the he was off the floor, I guess, for that for that big run in that second quarter, I guess, you know, with yeah. the, with the two fouls, so that, that might have saved them there. But he wore more pairs of shoes in in game two than he scored points. That can't happen. That that just can't happen. I don't want to see PJ Tucker, you know, worried more about shoes when you're down forty nine points in a, in a game where. Honestly, you're going to have to try and beat this team four of the next five times, and you're worried about switching out shoes. Like, I get that was premeditated. He probably had that plan going into the game. But when you see the the game going the way it's going, you stick to the one pair. You have to stick to the one pair. I, I'm i not going to weigh in on this argument. I'm going to leave this, this to you. You're clearly very passionate about it. Um, all I will say about Kevin Durant, like, I mean, it, it seems ridiculous to say that he's really hard to guard but the thing when you have like a pj tucker or Giannis on him that makes him just another le- level of basically unguardable is that he's so good running off of screens whether it's pin downs for little jump shots from mid-range or three um, but also handoffs and having like pj tucker and Giannis fight through those screens that was something else that jumped out from game two that just makes him so difficult to guard because then when you switch i mean some of the the guys even drew holiday drew holiday's Arguably the the best defender of the guard position, or, or one of the best if it's Ben Simmons. Um, I mean, but he has no answer against Kevin Durant. Um, a, another ridiculous stat, by the way, that I saw kind of floated around today. In the playoffs, KD is shooting fifty four and a half percent on tightly contested two point field goals, and forty three point five percent on tightly contested uh, three point field goals. And yeah, the combination makes up nearly two thirds of his shot attempts. So he's just. If that doesn't say unguardable, I don't. I don't really know what does. He's in. He's in his zone. He's in his zone. Just for context, by the way, of me calling out Giannis to guard Kevin Durant, um, Jason Tatum in the five games spent ninety nine possessions on KD, by far the most of any Celtic. The next closest was Marcus Smart. He was under thirty possessions on Kevin Durant in that series. So, partial possessions that is according to NBA.com stats. So. It's not like Jason Tatum had a had to carry a heavy load offensively, given the fact that Jalen Brown wasn't playing, Cameron Walker was in and out of the lineup. I mean, he was looking over, you know, at starting lineup and sometimes seeing Romeo Langford, you know, in the game, starting games for uh, for the Boston Celtics there, and he he still took it upon himself to guard Kevin Durant. If Jason Tatum could do it, so can Giannis. So I do hope that we see more Giannis on KD 
at at least in the next two games and see what happens there. And for sure in game three, because it's, it's do or die now for the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, let's move on and, and talk about Trey Young. Uh, he's been incredible, Scott. He really has. Mm-hmm. And he's, I'll be honest with you, I, he's better than I thought he was. And then I was... I was in. I, I don't think I was in the camp. Of, I can't sit here and say I was a fan in in terms of, you know, everything that came with the Trey Young and the half court shots and everything else. But I think those moments, especially the ones that he had in his rookie year, where the team was awful, but he put up big numbers. I just assume that he, it might be a lot of empty calories. He's obviously evolved his game from what he was then, but seeing him in winning situations and the way he's handling it and the confidence he's playing with. And it's oozing off of him that it's now oozing onto his team. That to me is something that I didn't take into consideration. That Trey Young would have that same sort of quality that Luca has, where if you know you have Luca on the floor, you you always have a chance. And because Luca is so great, I think Trey Young's often in the shadows. Trey Young has that same quality too, where he's so confident in his game that just rubs off on you, and you see you start to play better with him on the floor. Yeah, he he's pretty surgical. Um, and what I mean, I know all the like the deep threes, the step back threes get all the attention with him. But I think my favorite part about his game is his floater. Um, apparently, according to ESPN, he made four floaters per game this season, which was the most in the league. And you saw it a lot in that game one. Like whenever there's a drop coverage and he gets in the paint, that just feels like that's that's going to go in every single time he rises up for it. But I think what separates him from being like good in that regard and one of the best is that um, NBA.com's Kyle Irving made a good point about this after game one, is that he's so good at disguising his floater and his like alley-oop passes to a Clint Capella or John Collins in those situations. And he's basically just playing mind games, sort of like we see with with James Harden. Um, He's really good at that. So, and to your point, very good three-point shooter, confident three-point shooter who can get hot. He is... It feels weird because he's among the league leaders in assists per game um, the last couple seasons, but it does feel like his passing is a little bit underrated. Like he's he's a really really good passer, and it's it, weird. It's weird that we say that because he's always at the top of the league in terms of assists per game, right? Like it's not yeah, exactly. like he, he he's falling under the radar here with five assists under or under, and we we kind of have to watch the games to see him perform well. He's he's up there. No, exactly, and that's why it, it does feel like it's. It's a little bit underrated, and uh, if you look at like the assist, the the highest assist combinations this season, I think him to John Collins and him to Clint Capella were like two out of the top six assist combinations. So he's on that list twice with two different teammates, which is absolutely insane. Um, so yeah, he, he's pretty surgical. I, I I do think one thing that we haven't seen with him yet so far in this playoffs. And if they do make it out of this round, I don't know if we'll see it in this round, but if they do make it out of it, I think we'll see it, whether it is the Nets or the Bucks. is that neither the 76ers or the Knicks really were able to target him defensively. And I, I think that's going to be the interesting thing to see moving forward because not to compare him to Luka, but like Luka's not known for his defense but i i think he's like he's big enough and smart enough to kind of get away on the end of the court like you can't just pick on him all the time but i think of a team like the nets or the bucks like they're going to put him in pick and roll after pick and roll they're going to attack him get him in foul trouble wear him down sort of a way that we saw with like how lebron did it to steph curry in the finals all those times um and steph steph turned into a good defender but he was just the weakest defender on that group but i i think that's going to be like the next test for trey young but i mean offensively this guy is passing 
everything that's been thrown at him so far, he's just been unbelievable. Basically averaging like 30 and 10 in his sleep in the playoffs so far. Um, and we got to say, like in game one, he, he did it against one of the best defensive teams in the league um, and a team that has two of the two all NBA caliber perimeter defenders in Ben Simmons and, Simmons and Matisse Tybel. Um, and also Danny Green, who who defended him the most in that game. And I think we'll see probably more of Simmons and Tybal in game two and moving forward um, and how they kind of approach that matchup. You know, they, they trapped him quite a lot, even when one of those guys were on him in the second half of that game one. Is that something they continue to do? Do they play him some coverage? But he he's just, I mean, he's a handful. And uh, the it, it's been, it's interesting. It's similar with Devin Booker too. I feel like he's someone who I've always been a Devin Booker fan and but there was a part of me i mean everyone going into this playoffs it was like this is his first postseason what can we really expect and he's been incredible and it's the same thing with trey young these young guys this next generation has been unreal they really have um the one thing i will say the the the, the targeting defensively um as you said we'll, we'll probably see that at some point but i think it's 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 kind of uh buyer beware with that one because when you look at the hawks and you know to to compare him to luka cuz he's always going to be compared to luka for the rest of his career that's just life um with the luka situation when he gets targeted with the mavericks the mavericks defensively just beyond you know having a lockdown they don't have one of those guys that they could say all right Let's clean up the mess for Luka. Like, they're just not that good of a defensive team, even without having to target Luka. So when they do go ahead and target Luka and you're, you're trying to kind of give the extra help to Luka and everything else, it just opens you up for so much more abuse uh, offensive, defensively um, because there's just so many more options. This Hawks team around Trey is really good defensively um, and, yeah, right. and probably didn't get credit for how good they were. Uh, post All Star break, like they were nearly a top ten team, um, you know, in terms of defensive rating after the All Star break, they're probably a, uh, a one point separated them from from them and sixth place, which was the Warriors. So it, it is, it, you know, you can try and target Trey, but you're getting out of your rhythm offensively by doing that because you're now forcing things to try and attack him, and then the secondary options, you're now putting your situation where you're throwing it to, I guess, subpar players. And plus, defenders are in front of them. No one gives Bogdan Bogdanovich enough credit for how, how good he is defensively, me included. I didn't think he was as good as he, as he is. He, he's showing that he definitely gets his hands on balls. He, he deflects a lot of balls. Um, very intelligent. He's almost like a Jokic in the way that he he doesn't – it's not pretty. It's not gorgeous defensively what he does, but it's definitely effective. And he, he has enough athleticism, Bogdanovich, to stay in front of, you know, players and, and play with his smarts. And then Clint Capella has been incredible at eating up space in this playoffs. Like, it, it, we really need to, to put a spotlight on what he's done uh, so far in the first five games of the – or the first six games, rather, for the Hawks because he is – Offensively, just so tough with the you know the way that he plays above the rim and vertically, and uh, the way he's attacking the offensive glass. But then defensively, he's making up for the the mistakes that the Hawks do make, and he's challenging a lot of shots when you know teams get to the rim. And he's not afraid to meet you right at that dotted line uh, when you when you turn the corner on a pick and roll situation. So everyone's going to look at Embiid going for thirty nine and think that Capella wasn't effective in that game, but he he was. He was in so many different ways. Um, I, I think the Hawks are, are just a better team defensively than we're giving them credit for and that's the reason why they're here in the second round and, and it's a real real fight with the with the six sixers but saying all that um 
What 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 adjustments can the Sixers make? Because this is now a series where they can't afford to go down 0-2 going back to Atlanta. Uh, and I think that they made those adjustments already in that second half of game one that got them back in it and maybe almost got them a win. Do you see them carrying that over? I I, I do. I, I think the, the Hawks just came out with a purpose in game one, and it felt like they just kind of punched the 76ers in the face, and the 76ers didn't know how to recover until... I was going to say too late. They almost actually won that game despite being down by, I think it was like 26 points at one uh, at one time. But they just, they ramped up their aggression in the second half. I thought Matisse Tybal did a good job, a good job on Trey Young, even though he picked up um, a couple fouls. Same thing with Ben Simmons. Like, I think we're going to see more Ben Simmons. I feel like the 76ers have to put more Ben Simmons on Trey Young, show him some more length, be more aggressive with him as well. Um, I mean, I think that's that's going to be it. This Hawks team is more than just Trey Young, but at the end of the day, he's the the straw that stirs the drink. You know what I mean? So if you can kind of make things difficult for him in a way that we haven't seen yet in the playoffs, um, that's going to have a trickle trickle down effect on the rest of this team. Um, one thing about Clint Capella, by the way, everything you said, like that that whole first round series. Their game plan against Julius Randle was basically send him baseline to where Clint Capella was to help. Um, and they shut him down and the Knicks down, and that's just a testament to how good he is defensively. So, and like you said, him being a lob threat offensively helps him out a ton in that regard as well. So, it, it's it's going to be a fun series. I, I didn't know what to expect going into it because mm-hmm. obviously Embiid's health. Um, that's I mean that's that's the biggest story in this series if he's healthy or not and whether or not he can go. But it, it does look like it's going to be more competitive than I thought it was going to be. Um, and I'm I'm fascinated to see how they kind of approach that Trey Young matchup from the get go in game two because they they threw a, a number of different things at him. Clearly, the first half what they did was not working, and I think they're going to be better prepared for it in game two. I know game two. I'm excited for game two, and everyone should be. Game four to me is going to be the series or the game rather. Um, that we really find out about Trey Young win or lose because by then the Sixers would have made adjustments to him. They would have seen him three times. They they would have a game plan in place that they think they could execute that would help them win the series. And if Trey Young sees all of this, figures it out, and is still able to play as well as he has in Game Four beyond that, then then we're talking about uh, you know a top twelve player in the league. And, and don't take that lightly because this league is really good, as you just mentioned. A lot of names in this league that are in that seven, eight, nine range that could be you know the best player on a, on a championship roster. And, and, and it, it, Trey Young, I don't know if he – I still have questions on whether or not he could be the best player on a championship team, but I think a lot of those would be answered in game four and beyond if he's able to kind of win or lose but figure out – the, the, the Sixers defensively because this is probably going to be the best defensive team that he would see in the playoffs this year. Um, you know the Nets have been incredible, but they don't have they don't have Tybal, they don't have Ben Simmons, they don't have a protector like Joel Embiid just in case things don't go the way that they want to go. And then Danny Green, even though he got cooked by Trey Young in Game One, he's still a really good defender um, yeah. and, and still has the length and size that you know should be able to bother Trey. So. They're going to be physical with him from the ne- over the next two games. They're going to force the referees to blow the whistle, and I wonder how Trey Young handles it. If if he is he is his body going to be able to take it? Is he going to be ready to 
kind of still perform at a high level knowing he's going to take contact? Is he going inside to, to, to drop that floater? Dwight Howard and him are going to get into it. it. It just feels like it's going to happen, right? Like Dwight Howard is going <laughs> to gonna lay leave an elbow out there a little too long as Trey Young's in the air with one of those floaters targeting the rib area. It, it just feels like Dwight is going to do something that goes over the line and the Hawks are going to have to step up and kind of defend him, but that's going to be in the back of Trey, Trey Young's mind every time he goes to the rim. So very interested to see how uh, how things shift here at, after game two. Um, that is that's that's game two of of, of that series. Uh, and quickly before we before we move further, uh, Clippers Clippers Jazz. Quick prediction there. What what do you think happens? Ooh, you put me on the spot. Um, yeah, on the spot. I could go first if you if you're not ready for it. Well, I know what you're gonna say. Oh, but I, I mean, are we gonna talk about how you uh, you kind of puffed your chest up last week about the picking the Mavs to win that series, and we're gonna ignore hey, Atlanta in Game Seven? They, they were, were close. close. That was that was that was a heck of a series. That was, was. that was a great series. Um, I I've I've gone back and forth on this. I think my gut just kind of goes with Clippers in in six or seven, just because ultimately they have the best player in the series in Kawhi Leonard. And I'm right. I'm very curious to see how I'm I'm assuming they're gonna play small after the the success they had, right? Maybe not all the time, um, like they did in the Mavs, but I think they're gonna play small and and kind of see how the Utah Jazz adjust. In saying that, I mean the Jazz have been incredible on both ends of the court all season long. It would not surprise me if they won this series. They're a very good team, but um, my my gut just kind of says Clippers mainly because of Kawhi, and they showed a lot of resilience in those those last um, four five games in that series against the Mavericks. You know, off air, I've been very vocal about the fact that I think people are underrating the Jazz, and I thought that they would destroy either team that came to them in the second round series, whether it be the Clippers or the Mavs. The Clippers are here now, and I still think I, I favor Utah, but without Mike Conley, it's tough for me to go out right and yeah, be as tough. boisterous as I was because he, even though he's not their best player, it's just another guy in the rotation that just sets everybody in place. You now have to rely on maybe Royce Young stepping up in the starting lineup, Jordan Clarkson stepping up in the starting lineup, and they're good players. But you just don't want to see the you know the, the the chemistry disrupted. I think what makes Utah good is that they have a lot of good B plus players, and when you take one of them away, you're now facing an A plus, and you know if Paul George shows up, an A minus. Um, and that's tough to beat when you have a lot of B plus guys. So, I I would I'm still Utah. I, I still think Utah could get it done because I, I do think this is a really good team, and I think that the Clippers just when push comes to shove, they they tend to fold. But um, I, it wouldn't shock me now if the Clippers win this series. It, it wouldn't at all. Um, so that's quick on that one. I'm sure we'll have more on it next week. But uh, Suns are they are they the best remaining team in the Western Conference, Scott? Like they look really good in Game One. They they look incredible um, in, in both. I mean, again, going back to the whole Booker thing, like I, I think the biggest question going into that Lakers series was, you know, were these young son, sons ready uh, for, first of all, a matchup with the defending champions, but just moving on beyond that? And every single one of them has answered the call. I mean, Devin Booker has been incredible. DeAndre Ayton on both ends of the court has been a monster. Mikel Bridges has basically continued to do what he did during the regular season. And I mean, and, and they showed it again in game one against the Nuggets team that obviously is shorthanded, but talk about resilience. Like this might be the most tough minded team in the league and they still have the front runner for MVP, Nikola Jokic. Um, so that, that was an, another incredible performance by them. To answer your question, I'm going to sit on the fence here because ultimately all of this depends. The answer to this question depends on the state of Chris Paul and how his shoulder is. And, you know, he was, he was, one. 
It did. He he was up and down in that Lakers series, but game one yesterday against uh, against the Nuggets, he looked fantastic. That that run that he had, I think it was in the fourth quarter, uh, to kind of basically seal the deal. Like that that's that's Chris Paul. That's what he does. That's what we know him for. So if they can kind of get that version of Chris Paul and they can continue to fire on on all the cylinders that they have been to this point with the other guys they sure look like a team that that could win the title this season. I mean, they've been monsters on both ends of the court during the regular season. Again, they answered that that first test in that first round. And as much as I love this Nuggets team, I mean, this is this is Phoenix's series to lose. Yeah, it really is. I I think the the Suns um are just too much too much firepower and and you know I hate the um, the narrative that that tends to happen when you know players go out of the lineup and a team still performs at a high level. Like I, I, I'm tired of seeing the Jamal Murray, like the Lakers or the, the Nuggets could be better without Jamal Murray. Like the, I, I just think that's nonsense. Anyone that says that is just you know is, is trolling. Jamal Murray is the second best player on the team. I love Michael Porter Jr., but he is the third best player when every when all systems are a go. And without Jamal Murray, you're seeing the difference between a team that is focused and, and able to play at a high level. And and a team that's not, and you know the Nuggets, they've had a great year, but it's gonna it's gonna come to an end here because Phoenix is just clearly better on so many levels, and even if Jokic has you know MVP type numbers, which I assume he will at some point, they just don't have enough firepower to deal with this team, um, being Phoenix. So I do expect the Suns to get back to the Western Conference Finals, and Chris Paul to maybe punch his ticket to the NBA Finals for the first time in his career. That would be great. Um, lastly, here speaking of the Suns. Their coach, Monty Williams, comes up short in his bid for coach of the year. Tom Thibodeau wins that. Uh, great season for both teams, the Knicks and the Suns. Um, but what's your thoughts? A lot of people are saying that Monty should have won coach of the year. In fact, he got more first place votes, if I'm not mistaken. And Thibodeau wins the award. Yeah, you're right. Uh, we, we had we had a good call, a talk about this on one of our uh, calls today with, with our NBA.com global team. And, and I think one of the interesting things, I, I thought Monty Williams deserved Coach of the Year. I'll just get that out, out there. I think Tibbs had a fantastic season, obviously is worthy for for this award. Um, I'm not going to argue too heavily about that. But I do think the interesting thing about this is, you know, the Knicks were probably the most surprising team in the league this season. Like they were going into the season, they were expected to be one of the worst teams in the league, like 28th to 30th kind of range. And the jump that they made, buying in defensively, like Tibbs deserves a ton of credit for that. But I, I, I think with Coach of the Year and also Most Improved, the people who, the individuals who get that, it usually goes to the most surprising um, or the biggest story in that regard. Whereas I think it was almost more difficult with what Monty Williams did. Like, yes, this Suns team went 8-0 in the bubble and showed they have the ability to to rise to the occasion but to take that team add chris paul get everyone to buy in on both ends of the court this team was top 10 offensively and defensively this season and come up i think it was one game shy of the utah jazz for the best record in the league like i i think there's just something to say to to not only meeting expectations but absolutely shattering it and putting this team into a position where obviously this is a regular season award um and now that we know they're kind of what seven wins away from an NBA Finals. Um, but they, they they did, I mean, everything pointed towards them being like a legitimate title contender all season long. And to get them there, 
that that's just ultimately why I, I would have given Monty Williams the edge in coach of the year and why I had him first on my ballot, not an official ballot, didn't have a vote, but um, on our fake ballot, I guess I had him at number one and Tibbs number two. But again, not to take anything away from Tibbs, had a fantastic season, the way that he helped turn around that Knicks team, um, huge market team, obviously deserves a ton of credit. But but yeah, I, I, I sided with, with Monty on this. Yeah, um, as you know, I wasn't uh, wasn't too upset that Tibbs won the award. It honestly could have went either way for me. Um, and you're right. I, I don't think people un, you know knew that Phoenix was going to be as good as they are. In fact, they're a plus 4,000 um, to win the NBA title to begin the year. And that was the exact same odds uh, given to the Portland Trailblazers and, and Houston Rockets to start the year. <laughs> We're at yeah. plus five thousand. So it wasn't like they were they were in the same area as the Houston Rockets and the Portland Trailblazers, and they obviously exceeded all expectations. But when you look at the New York Knicks, um, <laughs> the, the Knicks were uh, they had the worst odds in the league to win the NBA championship. The worst odds. It was them tied at the bottom uh, with with the Cleveland Cavaliers and Detroit Pistons. The worst odds by far in the league for them to finish fourth. Um, with home court advantage going into it, they were projected to win twenty one and a half games. They won forty one, um, and and you know, obviously Randall took the step that I don't think people would have seen uh, coming. Um, R.J. Barrett found his jump shot that helped, and then there was piecework uh, you know across the board. Nerlens Noel had a terrific season. I think he's going to get paid big time this offseason by a team. Um, you know, he also had to deal with some injuries. Mitchell Robinson was probably going to be counted on to take a, a leap to at least get them into a playing game. He was, you know, non-existent for the season. They had to find Derrick Rose in a trade, um, so he had to weather a lot of storm in in in, uh, in New York. And he was able to do that. One of the best defensive team in the league in the regular season. Um, they were still really good defensively in the playoffs, but they just couldn't score. So. It, Tibbs was able to get the job done with limited resources um, in in New York in terms of you know the the high end players and uh, and and to to get them to the four seed in the East it, I think is incredible and it's all it's a little bit of a gift and a curse because he's going to win this Coach of the Year award. There's going to be high expectations coming into next season for this Knicks team that uh, I don't think they'll be able to reach because when the rest of the East gets you know back to normal. Um, it's going to be tough for them to compete at the high level. The Raptors had a down year. We saw what happened to Washington to start the year. Obviously, they came on strong uh, on the back end of the season when they got healthy. But if you assume, even if they keep this team together, you assume that they get healthy, they're not going to be toiling around, at, you know, tenth and eleventh uh, next season. Who knows what happens with Indiana? Um, but I think the Knicks would be competing with an Indiana. Um, Chicago in that area. They they're gonna have a full year now with with uh, with Zach Levine and and uh, and um, uh, Vucevic. I, I, Vucevic, Nikola Vucevic. Yep. They're gonna have a full year with that guy, and that's that's a tough team uh, that the Knicks are gonna have to compete with. And that though that area that that kind of unit that they're competing with, they're gonna be competing for you know eight, nine, ten uh, in the Eastern Conference because Boston, you assume, is going to get better when Jalen Brown's healthy and J- Jason Tatum's on the floor, and they didn't get a chance to play a lot this year with all the health and safety. Um, you look at the Hornets, they're still going to be right there with uh, in, in that mix. Um, and, and you know, I don't think the Nets are going to get any worse than what they are now, and, and same with Milwaukee and, and Sixers. So it's going to be tough for, for the, Net, the Knicks sorry, to hold on to that uh, number four seed next year. So this offseason is going to be big for them, and the expectations are going to be so high. So it's a little bit of a give and a curse for, uh, for New York. 
and they have money to spend. Well, they could have money to spend this offseason. They do, so but it's who you be, spend it on? It's not. Well, that's not the thing. Needle movers, right? Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how they spend that money um, and kind of how they build up this team after what happened in the playoffs. But I mean, the Suns are in a fascinating situation too. Uh, they're, they're obviously they, they have Devin Booker. They, they like they have a younger core that is very clearly more more prepared for the playoffs and the kind of the big stage. But I mean, Mikel Bridges is going to be up for an extension. DeAndre Ayton is going to be up for an extension. There's already been some talk about Chris Paul potentially declining his player option and signing another three or four year deal. Like the Suns, depending on how these things go, are going to have a very busy offseason where they're paying a lot of guys. And obviously, depending on how far they go, they're going to have big expectations in a West next season that's going to be absolutely loaded. I mean, we can go through, we don't have to, but we can go through the same all the teams like you just did in the East, a Golden State Warriors mm. team getting Klay Thompson back. Um, what does right. Portland do? Dallas, what do they do after their their seven game loss to the Clippers? Do they kind of retool around Luka? So it's, it. I mean, this all comes back to one thing, which is I think the NBA is in a, in a pretty good state right now. You look at these next generation of players and how they're playing. Um, guys like Luka, guys like Trey Young, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, all these guys are stepping up. Um, and just generally, like it, it does feel like there's, there's just so many teams that can kind of make a leap or even just be in playoff picture next year. Um, it's, it's all in all, it's a pretty exciting time. It really is. It really is. I didn't even mention Miami, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be yeah. mixed to get to get a lot better uh, this year. So, and we know they're going to be aggressive too. Yeah, they absolutely will be. So it, it is a great spot to be in if you're an NBA fan, um, because there's so many exciting teams and you, you really shouldn't take what you have for granted where, regardless of where you are, on the docket, you know, you really should take it uh, and and enjoy it. You look at the Bucks right now, down 0-2, but they could very well be, you know, uh, you know, not even in the second round come next year, uh, given the teams that we just said that could improve. So, it, don't take it for granted if you're a Milwaukee fan. Definitely don't take it for granted if you're a, a Denver fan. Even without Jamal Murray, still enjoy the ride, um, and we'll we'll try to keep you uh, up to date with everything that's going on in the playoffs and the NBA as a whole. Um, Next time we talk, we'll likely know who the Rookie of the Year is, uh, and we'll also likely know possibly who the MVP is. Um, there's no doubt that it's going to be Nikola Jokic, but we'll spend some time talking about Oh, we'll about spend the MVP, some time. Uh, if it is indeed announced. <laughs> Scott's been waiting uh, you know, for, for the last three months uh, to, to, to have this deep dive conversation about him when he finally uh, officially gets crowned the league MVP. But also the, the debate between LaMelo Ball and, and Anthony Edwards, I think, will we'll get reignited once um, one of them win the Rookie of the Year award, which I'm sure we'll find out who that is uh, before we talk to you next Tuesday. Uh, and Defensive Player of the Year, right? Yeah, Defensive Player of the Year. I don't. I, that's the one I haven't really thought about. It, the, the finalists are, I want to say, uh, Simmons, uh, Draymond, and Rudy. Yep. I, I mean, Rudy's going to get it, I think. I think that's... I think so. I don't think there's going to be too many surprises with these last awards. I think it's going to be Lamelo Ball, Rudy Gobert, and then Nikola Jokic. I, I would be I'd be shocked if it was anything else. Fair enough. Well, regardless, we'll we'll spend some time giving them credit uh, because a lot of those those players, especially Rudy, who's about to hit history if he's able to win this Defensive Player of the Year award, yep. uh, defend to spend some time on it. And Lamelo Ball or Anthony Edwards, either or of them, I think they've had both incredible seasons. And if it's Lamelo. Um, you know, what he did in the short amount of time, we, we definitely need to spend some time on that. So 
We'll we'll bookmark that for for next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, across the NBA Global Networks. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of the playoffs. It's only two games a night, so you don't have to you know flip between back and forth and try to figure out if you have NBA TV or not. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> you do have it. And it's not blacked out in your area. All those, all that that chaotic stuff that happens in the postseason uh, when you're trying to see Damian Lillard go nuclear on a team and you, you can't figure it out and can't find it. But we don't have to worry about that no more. All the games are available on TNT and ESPN. So enjoy the playoffs. We will catch you next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, right here across the NBA Global Networks. For Scott Rafferty, I'm Carlin Gay. See you next week.